Hello and welcome to yet another exciting Ala podcast episode. This time we present to you a whole season of wide-ranging discussions on the concept of modernity in Kerala. For more conversations on all things Kerala, follow our bilingual blog at alablog.in. Hello everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Allah's podcast series on Kerala modernity. In this episode, we will explore the conversations and debates around indigenous health practices in Kerala and their complex refashioning that happened in the 20th century. Today, we have with us KP Girija, an independent scholar who will speak to us about the modernization of the indigenous systems of medicine in Kerala. Her uh, recently published book titled Mapping the History of Ayurveda culture hegemony and the rhetoric of diversity examined the history of institutionalization of ayurveda in the 20th century and the complex processes associated with it uh, welcome girija to this episode thank you shri devi in uh, recent times there's a huge popularization and demand for ayurvedic treatment in the month of monsoon called karkidaga chigilsa we can see a lot of advertisements of products like karkidaga kanni treatment like ulchil for 2 or 3 weeks and so on with a tagline of authentic system of healing from kerala how do you look at this narrative of authenticity that is attributed to ayurveda in our contemporary times uh, what constitute this uh, traditional ayurveda or this classical ayurveda Uh, is yet to to be addressed in many of the scholarships is uh, when um, ayurveda claims or when practitioners claims that uh, their practice is an authentic ayurveda practice we don't know what constitute this authenticity of that practice because uh, there there are and there were and still there are a diverse range of practices that claims that they are all ayurvedic practices or they they name uh, after 20th century these practices are divided into uh, ayurveda practice and uh, natvaidyam practice natvaidyam uh, is equivalent to indigenous medicine uh, whereas this uh, this assorted practices Uh, which are peculiar to south india i don't want to say that they are uh, peculiar to kerala or they are spe- they are the special practices of kerala because we all know that when kerala is geographically and linguistically um, constituted uh, they are the uh, uh, special practices of south india and uh, all of these practices claim that they are uh, indigenous medicinal practices so um when you ask me about this authenticity of uh, the practices uh, this is a complicated question uh, we don't know whether the institutionalized and modernized ayurveda is the authentic practice or the diverse traditions which includes a lot of uh, practices such as uh, i'll say a few name i will name a few of them uh, there is this uh, marmani vaidyam which which uh, treats for vital spot injuries and uh, it uh, vital spot massaging is also part of that and there is this pottamuli which is a single medicine uh, 
for particular diseases like uh, uh, asthma, piles, kidney stone, etc. Uh, there is the Siddha Vaidyam, which is which is now part and parcel of this Dravidian, which which claims that it is part and parcel of this Dravidian tradition of Tamil Nadu. And uh, there is this Visha, Visha Vaidyam or indigenous toxicology, which was a very uh, rob, uh, robust practice that prevailed in Kerala. And there were a lot of uh, grandinade uh, Vaidyashalas or pharmacies in indigenous, indigenous toxicology pharmacies in Kerala. Uh, and there is this uh, uh, special treatment for children, which is known as Bala Chikalsa. And uh, there is a, another special treatment for the eyes and nose, which is known as uh, Netra Vaidyam. And there is this calorie treatment, which includes bone setting. We know calorie as martial art, but it, in, it also includes uh, bone setting and uh, vital spot massaging. Uh, apart from these uh, range of practices, uh, this Yunani uh, medical practice, which came to India through the Arab, uh, Arabia, Ara Arabic and Persian culture, there is there is certain practices which are which are internal to certain communities, such as uh, Adivasi Vaidyam and uh, Kadal Vaidyam or this sea Vaidyam, which is internal to the fishermen community. So a range of practices are there and many of them now claims or sell medicines in uh, through their through some small shops. Uh, uh, these these uh, medicines which you have mentioned that is Karkedaga Kanyi. Of course, not Adivasi Vaidyam or Kadal Vaidyam. They don't sell these, these kind of medicines, but all other practices or, or a range of practices claim that they are all Ayurveda and they will sell, they will also sell these particular Karkedaga Kanyi or uh, they will provide this uh, uh, massaging and uh, um, um, other kinds of medicines. So, uh, uh, how do we uh, separate an authentic Ayurveda from this range of Ayurvedas? So uh, 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 I would pause this question and I think uh, this uh, question will uh, reveal the complexity of this issue, Sridevi. How the different systems of medicine which you mentioned right now are excluded during the process of institutionalization that happened in the 20th century? Uh, thank you for this question, Sri Devi. It gave me a, um, a, a more space to answer, uh, um, address the complexity of the processes that uh, includes uh, institutionalization, standardization, or rather modernization of uh, um, indigenous medicine and the exclusion inherent in this modernization process. Uh, studies uh, mention Ayurveda as an already existing practices. When I mean, um, when I uh, mention studies, I mean that the, the uh, works of academicians as well as the writings of orientalists, travelers, indologists, administrators, and practitioners of Ayurveda, practitioners of Ayurveda claim that uh, Ayurveda uh, existed in India almost uh, for uh, 
4,000 years from the Vedic period onwards. Academicians did not, most of the academicians or majority of the academicians, they did not mention this Vedic period, but they mentioned about the classical Ayurveda. Some fundamental questions are never asked to uh, asked in these uh, in these kind of narratives or in these kind of kinds of discourses. What constitute this classical Ayurveda? This is a question that has not been asked in majority of the scholarships. Where did the classical Ayurveda end and the folk practices, or sometimes they are called as popular practices, where did they begin? This is also a difficult question to answer and a question that has not been asked uh, in majority of the scholarships. Uh, so, um, in the in the scholarships, majority of the scholarship, we can see uh, two major perspectives, or um, I I have pointed out two major perspectives that sets the norms of norms to study indigenous medicine. In the vertical model, uh, scholars uh, perceive that knowledge trickled down from the top to the bottom. So um, the top of occupies by the practitioners uh, of the classical tradition. The classical tradition was presumed to be um, owned by the literate practitioners the, uh, and the literate practitioners and the textual tradition. Literacy and textual tradition are connected in the 20th century. The text was in Sanskrit and uh, Basically, they were uh, seen as the upper caste practitioners or the upper class practitioners or the elite practitioners. The bottom occupies by the uh, um, illiterate. I don't want to call them as illiterate. I would use the uh, term non-literate because literacy was not an essential uh, Thing to learn any kind of knowledge, to practice any kind of knowledge uh, uh, until the early 20th century. So the bottom occupies the uh, by the uh, non-literate oral tradition and they use either uh, vernacular text or they don't use text, they use oral text and they were, they were seen as the practitioners of uh, practitioners belong to the lower caste community. They are termed as the folk practices, folk indigenous medicine, or sometimes they, they are called as the popular indigenous medicine. In this vertical model, uh, sharing there is no space for the sharing of knowledge or there is no space for an interaction among these diverse practices. Uh, knowledge uh, flows only uh, in one way. There is no imagination of a reverse osmosis of knowledge. And this is a patronizing model. There is no doubt about it. In the center periphery model, the center, uh, the knowledge flows from the center to the periphery. And the center was occupied by the uh, literate textual Sanskritic tradition of upper caste or upper class practitioners. And the periphery was seen as occupied by the non-literate oral vernacular traditions of the lower caste practitioners. Uh, the, the center was, uh, here the center was uh, seen as something that is capable enough to address the universal uh, health issues, whereas the periphery was seen as something very local or very specific. 
which has no potential to uh, address the health issues of the, uh, the people of the uh, larger uh, geographical area. Uh, this uh, send both the models are equivalent to the orientalistic perspective, uh, the earlier orientalistic perspective on the division of tradition as great tradition and little tradition. In other words, the, this is a sophist, the, the, the new idea of the vertic vertical model and the center periphery model um, is a sophisticated version of this earlier orientalistic perspective on the great tradition and the little tradition. In both the model, the vertical model as well as the center periphery model, the, uh, thinks that knowledge flows from the upper caste practitioners, the textual traditions and the literate practitioners to the uh, lower caste practitioners. So there is a patronizing tone in both these models. These these two models did not uh, acknowledge the reverse flow of the uh, knowledge. Uh, 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 since there is a rigid caste hierarchy that existed in all, all over India, we can presume that there are some impediments in the flow of knowledge. Of course, there were some impediments. One was the caste hierarchy. The other one was the uh, secrecy inbuilt in the knowledge, in transferring the knowledge. And the third one was that some of the knowledges are the preserves were the preserves of the families. They just hand over the knowledge to the their uh, 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 the people from their family. They did not uh, share the knowledge uh, to the outside uh, people. So these are all impediments of uh, of uh, the dissemination of knowledge. Yet there are some uh, possibilities too. Uh, 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 I would uh, say one, uh, two or three points uh, uh, that helps to disseminate the knowledge even within this caste hierarchy. Uh, one is uh, that the the herbs uh, um, uh, in the in the uh, upper caste families when they were the practitioners were upper caste practitioners. They engage the lower caste practitioners and the mapillas to go to the forests or the places which were not, um, uh, which they could not go because of the uh, rigid caste systems. They they ask the uh, they engage the lower caste practitioners and the mapillas to collect herbs and uh, give it to them. So there is a sort of dissemination in this process. The, the people who collected the herbs may gradually get a knowledge about the herbs and the usage about these herbs. And the second thing is that most of the uh, practitioners uh, uh, of uh, specific practices such as uh, Netra Vaidyam or, um, or uh, Visha Vaidyam or Bala Vaidyam, uh, practitioners of the uh, who do uh, the, the who address the diseases of the children, the, uh, and uh, the the people who do the massaging treatment and the bone setting treatment, these all need touch need a touch of the other body. So these practitioners, most of these practitioners belong to the lower caste, uh, and uh, they they uh, since they were specialists in particular practices, in certain uh, urgent situations, they were called to treat the upper caste people when they when when they need these kind of specialist treatments. Of course, 
this is this uh, this the access given to these lower caste practitioners are clearly on the basis of the caste rigidity still a temporary access was given to these practices at the time of urgency then this um, uh, the, the uh, during delivery during pregnancy and delivery of the uh, women in the upper caste society the people who do the services or who do the treatment for this pregnant woman uh, or the people who make post delivery medicine the people who uh, treat the babies they are known as petici or vaitati in malayalam or dais in english they were all belongs to this lower caste practitioners uh, lower caste community so when these women get access to get an access to this upper caste uh, family of course this is a temporary access and they will do many kind of rituals after this woman uh, left this house still this temporary access and the making of medicine for the mother making of shampoos for the mother and the babies or perhaps for the family members making of post delivery medicines and uh, these all are a, a process of dissemination of knowledge so there is a, a clear dissemination of knowledge from the lower caste communities to the upper caste community so these these kinds of sharing has happened and by, when these sharing happened the knowledge was incorporated into the uh, ayurveda when it is institutionalized and modernized of course standardized but the practitioners uh, were excluded from this uh, 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 institutionalization of uh, ayurveda uh, i would say little more about this exclusion uh, there were uh, different kinds of learning process that existed in these practices uh, in the 19th century of course there was this guru shishya system of learning people stay with their teachers for years and then they learn this uh, uh, um, indigenous medicinal practices from the guru guru in the 20th century when when slowly institutions were set up there were three institutions one was uh, the travancore ayurveda patashala the second one was the uh, ayurveda patashala that uh, that was part of this tripunitra sanskrit college and the third one was the kotakel uh, uh, ayurveda patashala uh, the the travancore ayurveda patashala and the Tripunitra Ayurveda Padashala uh, admit only upper caste students who knows Sanskrit. Whereas the Kotakil Ayurveda Padashala admits Ayurveda Padashala, sorry, Kotakil Ayurveda Padashala admits students who knows Malayalam and they allow the students to write the exam either in Malayalam or in Sanskrit. So these, apart from these three institutions, a large number of individual practitioners also um, Uh, teach students in their home or in uh, in the institutions they set up as an individual endeavor so different kinds of students were emerged from these institutions the, the three padashalas produced uh, practitioners with uh, degrees such as vaidya shastri uh, vaidya shiromani arya vaidin uh, vaidya bhushanam these are all uh, uh, degrees related to particular schools of ayurveda whereas the individual practitioners 
did uh, did not have the right to give degrees so the the um, students who uh, learned from these individual institutions came out and they were known as somebody who learned from this particular guru so different kinds of degrees were existed and people uh, practitioners without having any degrees were also existed so when the institutionalization of ayurveda happened when when the uh, medical registration was an essential thing to practice vaidyam uh, of course the exclusion started from this point people who have a degree who learn from particular institutions and who learned from particular um, gurus for more than 10 years they all got registration and they all are entitled to practice but the practitioners who did not acquire a registration from the uh, um, concerned uh, government they were not entitled to practice they of course they practice but they were known as uh, unauthorized practitioners so these kinds of exclusion happen at different levels could you talk a little bit about your sources i mean how did you map these diverse traditions diversity is a difficult realm to um, uh, document uh, people uh, used to address either the uh, established traditions of practice or the marginalized traditions of practice but there is a liminal space in between these two uh, established and marginalized practices and it's a muted space so i have interviewed uh, a number of uh, practitioners who practices different kinds of uh, indigenous medicine like uh, indigenous toxicology vital spot massaging kalari practitioners siddha vaidya practitioners ottamulli uh, practitioners single medicine uh, practice uh, given for specific uh, illness specific diseases so i have interviewed these practitioners apart from that in from 1920 to 1950 a large number of uh, magazines uh, were published on uh vaidyam or indigenous medicine apart from that uh, i have used old newspapers uh, such as vivegodayam nasrani deepika i have checked checked uh, the newspapers for advertisements and news about uh, uh, indigenous medicine or health related issues or health practices uh, apart from archival materials and uh, uh, scholar scholarly works i have used all these Uh, things to ad- address these uh, muted liminal spaces of diversity they these diverse practices are still existed in a scattered way in different parts of south india how did you find out sources and details of indigenous practices that are mainly oral in nature in terms of sources i uh, i had also faced the same question in in some of my presentations people ask uh, where did you get where will you get the sources uh, in in these kind of oral traditions and when i went to the uh, archives and libraries of uh, kerala uh, what surprised me is that uh, in the case of indigenous toxicology a large number of texts were available already there in the in the different libraries some works are not even seen as 
valuable or uh, authentic sources to learn uh, i have used a lot of vernacular texts in my work uh, there are, there were a um, uh, a large number of texts were produced in the 1930s to uh, up to 1950s and even now on different kinds of practices what happened is that the practitioners who knows that there there are there was no texts on their practice they started producing texts uh, in particular uh, practices specific practices such as vital spot body massaging and um, um, indigenous toxicology uh, etc and there were poems uh, written by uh, well known poets on practices of uh vaidyam for example vallathol narayana menon one of the uh, well known and great poets of kerala wrote on um balachigalsa uh, and it was it was um, the poem included the treatment methods medicines and uh, diseases uh, of the children so different uh, kinds of sources were there which we did not find that uh, they which we did not treat as sources in the earlier time many of the new researchers now started using these kinds of sources in different fields so it's not a lack of sources it is uh, it is about what is an authentic source and what is an an uh, what is a um, in a uh, um no source which is not recognized as what are the texts that are not treated as authentic sources to uh, do our research there were books written in indigenous medicine on different vernacular languages uh, which includes telugu kannada which i could not access of course uh, and uh, tamil malayalam sanskrit and even in arabi malayalam which was a language that existed even before 17th century ashtanga hridayam a well known text in uh, ayurveda was translated into arabi malayalam long back so there were sources and if i could access different kinds of languages uh, my research would have been much much richer coming to the question of language you have retained certain terms in malayalam for instance prayogam for practice and natuvaidyam for indigenous system of medicine could you elaborate on the choice of the language then we use concepts that evolved in uh, in particular cultural contexts or in the uh, in, um, for example in the in the west when we use concepts evolved in the west to address the issues uh that we tackled in our uh, work in another uh, uh location or another cultural context uh, i found that they they are insufficient to address uh, the, the complex issues within the knowledge practices that i have looked into so uh, i plan to use and uh, also and it was also suggested by many of the many of the faculty Uh, so i i uh, plan to retain many of the uh, vernacular concepts in order to 
um, show the the richness or the complexities of these concepts. I would say a little bit about indigenous, the term indigenous also. Um, I use the term indigenous medicine in my work because I, I couldn't find a different word for this indigenous. When I use indigenous, I did not mean that this is a unique practice or, or this Pantheshiyamaya in Malayalam, uh, unique practices of a particular region that uh, originated from that region. I did not mean that thing. Um, knowledge is always interact with each other. So they shared, they sometimes they compete with each other, sometimes they withhold their knowledge, sometimes they negotiate with other knowledges. So there is a sharing and interaction among knowledge practices. So there is no meaning in the in the particular word originating in one particular place. So what I mean by indigenous or Natuvaidim uh, uh, is that the practices that uh, that uh, came and uh, or that evolve and sustain in a particular region and that interact with other knowledges that enriches with the with the knowledges that they uh, acquired from other from the from their interactions uh, the this is the uh, one which i would like to call as indigenous and in terms of natu vaidyam even natu was not there in the earlier practices the term used in the earlier um, uh, Dhanundari magazine. In 1903, the term used for uh, Ayurveda was Vaidyam, not even Natu Vaidyam. Uh, gradually, the, the term Natu was uh, clubbed to Natu Vaidyam because Natu was, Nadu means a space or a geographical location and it was an assertion uh, of a particular place or a particular practice against a, 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 a foreign presence or a foreign invasion. So this Natu Vaidyam itself is a term uh, evolved in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. So uh, what happened to the learning process of indigenous practices during the modernization and institutionalization in the late 19th and 20th century? A range of things happened uh, in the 20th century, uh, not only because of institutionalization. Uh, the print technology also uh, brought out a range of possibilities to the uh, literate, uh, neo-literate and non-literate practitioners. So uh, the, uh, a, a large number of texts on by them were produced and uh, the uh, neo-literate practitioners and the literate practitioners uh, from different communities use these texts to enrich their knowledge and sometimes they also disseminate their own knowledge through different magazines. Denandari uh, was an example. Um, and um, uh, uh, during the institutionalization process, uh, many individual practitioners who run, uh, who, who teach uh, students or who run individual institutions, they advertise their uh, padashalas or uh, schools advertisement through uh, different magazines, including Vivekodayam, uh, Nasrani Deepika, Malayala Manorama, etc. in the 1910 to 1950. One example is that of Keshavan Vaidyan. He advertised that he, in his uh, 
പാഠശാല സ്റ്റുഡൻസ് ഹാസ് ദ ഓപ്പർച്യൂണിറ്റി ടു ലേൺ വൈദ്യം അക്കോർഡിംഗ് ടു ദി അഷ്ടവൈദ്യ അഷ്ടാംഗ സോറി അഷ്ടാംഗ അഷ്ടാംഗ ഹൃദയം ട്രഡീഷൻ ഓർ ത്രൂ ദി ട്രാവൻകൂർ പാഠശാല ട്രഡീഷൻ so uh, i uh, at that time i don't think that two kinds of traditions were existed but he he thinks that these are two traditions and he advocates that he in his padashala students has the uh, have the option to learn these two traditions apart from that he mentioned that he appointed a, uh, a surgeon and a, um, a physician to teach physiology and surgery to the physiology anatomy and surgery to the students apart from that he mentioned that he has uh, uh, maintained a herbarium uh, to uh, impart knowledge on uh, herbs to the students so these kinds of individual endeavor were also there along with this institutionalization process so uh, the learning uh they were also uh, incorporating many modern elements into their individual learning institutions uh while these kinds of things happen uh the the practitioners of the many of the lower caste practitioners who did not have the capital to uh um exist in this modernizing and capitalizing world they they uh, uh, survive through individual treatment and uh, uh, teaching a few numbers of students etc so, even now many practitioners uh, teach students um, uh, without having any institutional backup Uh, large scale modernization and institutionalization has happened now uh, which uh, excluded a la- lot of a large number of assorted practices and some of them are not even considered as authentic scientific practices indigenous toxicology is an example a number of things happened uh, with the introduction of print technology a new relationship uh, has been established between text language and literacy and uh, a new association uh, has been uh, brought out between knowledge and literacy i have mentioned that earlier literacy was not a not, not an essential thing or not a foundational thing to learn any kind of knowledge and higher higher status was given for reading and uh understanding uh, uh, what you have read in a particular way or in a rational way uh, uh, because of these process the mnemonic devices uh, used to learn in the oral tradition or used for learning oral knowledge um, uh, has been destroyed or has been uh, eliminated the the reiteration process and the memorizing process are seen as rote learning manapadam akal in malayalathil parayum the group learning uh, process in the earlier uh, era or the early 19th century was replaced by individual learning and uh, uh, the silent learning of a of an individual of course of a liberal individual uh, so the reiterative techniques were treated as Uh, um, treated with a lower status and uh, silent uh, reading and uh, individual learning has given a 
priority to to know the knowledge uh, rationally or to learn the knowledge rationally these things these changes also happen parallelly with the introduction of print technology and with the institutionalization of indigenous practices what is the role of tourism industry and also the state in developing the narrative of uh, tradition during this process of modernization of ayurveda there is an interesting turn in terms of the tourism industry uh, the practices which were not treated as authentic from the mid 20th century onwards some of the practices got more visibility and um, people started learning these practices more and more uh, to to um, give a treatment for tourists sometimes entertainment also for tourists for example this vital massage massaging uh, which was part and parcel of kalari vaidyam and siddha vaidyam the vital massaging uh, part is uh, taken from this practice and it is given as a separate package in many of the tourist places Uh, massaging parlors were there, and uh, and people started learning these practices even from uh, the practitioners who did not know these practices well, or uh, did not have an expertise in these practices. So sometimes uh, the the uh, a sort of uh, half learning or half hooked learning has happened in this area, but at the same time the bond setting. in the kalari and siddha vaidyam has no role at all in the uh, um, uh, established treatment uh, package of ayurveda they they were prevailing in different parts of uh, south india in a very scattered way and uh, this is the same to indigenous toxicology also indigenous toxicology is existing in a very scattered way in in some corners of kerala uh, the state has not given much attention to the diverse practices of kerala it um, picked up what is valuable in a particular uh, practice at a particular time and give uh, uh, importance to that particular practice like uh, what i said in, in the case of massaging parlors and vital spot body massaging uh, during the time of the covid uh, Uh, pandemic uh, the kerala state did not uh, encourage ayurveda practitioners to give treatment for these uh, patients as a uh, as a parallel uh, treatment package but in the case of tamil nadu the government um, promoted siddha practitioners and uh, the government advertised two of their products the nilavembu and kabachura uh, kudiniru which were very useful in the case of covid um, uh, treatment in kerala these kinds of uh, promotions or uh, uh, are not happening in the in terms of the uh, in the from the side of the government government plan to issue a bill Uh, stating that uh, the practitioners who did not registered as medical practitioners uh, were all treated uh, they will all all treated as uh, unauthorized practitioners um, 
many of the practitioners did not get a chance to write the exam uh, examination um, uh, in the uh, mid 20th century either they did not get a chance or they did not want to write because of their expertise in vaidyam so they were all uh, now treated as unauthorized practitioners yet uh, in terms of certain practitioners well known practitioners uh, even though they they are unauthorized practitioners uh, when there is a requirement of their expertise in particular areas the government officials invite them or ask them to come and uh, give their contribution or treat uh, uh, particular uh, diseases so it's a it's a kind of complex complex thing then another interesting thing happened is that practices started claiming the identity of particular geographical location or a certain nation state there, there was a conjoining of um, three things practices language and region and these three things constitute a distinctiveness to practices uh, as uh, for example uh, by mid 20th century kalari payattu uh, the kalari which we know today is uh, kalari payattu or martial art aspect of kalari kalari payattu started claiming that it is a peculiar practice of kerala Uh, at the same time there was this um, uh, practitioner started claiming that the northern kalari belongs to the malayalam language or the northern kalari uh, is that of the malayalis and the southern kalari is that of the tamilians um, kalari was uh, depicted as the practice of nayar community actually it was practiced by a number of communities including uh, religious people like uh, muslim community and christian community some of the practitioners were uh, muslims and christians and they have changampalli kalari was run by a um, muslim person and then the siddhavaidyam started claiming uh, as the uh, dravidian tradition of tamil tamil nadu earlier during the institutionalization of ayurveda siddhavaidyam uh, was the marginalized practice and siddhavaidyam started naming it as uh, or the practitioner started naming siddhavaidyam as tamil ayurveda now siddhavaidyam is claiming the identity of a dravidian tradition of tamil nadu um, ayurveda uh, got a higher status the classical ayurveda the institutionalized modernized uh, 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 ayurveda is the classical ayurveda it started claiming the unique practice of india with the sanskrit tradition yunani which has a which uh, which had an arabian persian connection arabic arabic persian connection did not get a uh, chance to claim any of the geographical regions identity it remained as the practice of the muslim community Uh, it was uh, really great to have an enriching conversation today uh, thank you girija for uh, speaking to us in detail about the history of modernization of ayurveda and the complex erasures that happened in its refashioning in the 20th century thank you sridevi and thank you alla for giving me a chance to speak about my work and my area of research this podcast is brought to you by alla you can check out more of our work on our website alablog.in 
In this season of our podcast, we are specifically looking at questions of Kerala modernity. Please follow us so you can be notified of our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.